Second Chronicles 25. Amaziah was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother na mother's name was Jehoiada of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart. And as soon as the royal power was firmly his, he killed his servants who had struck down the king his father, but he did not put their children to death according to what is written in the law in the book of Moses, where the Lord commanded, fathers shall not die because of their children, nor children die because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sin. Then Amaziah assembled the men of Judah and set them by fathers' houses under commanders of thousands and of hundreds for all Judah and Benjamin. He mustered those 20 years old and upward and found that there were 300,000 choice men fit for war, able to handle spear and shield. He hired also 100,000 mighty men of valor from Israel for a 100 talents of silver. But a man of God came to him and said, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel with all these Ephraimites. But go, act, be strong for the battle. Why should you suppose that God will cast you down before the enemy. For God has power to help or cast down. And Amaziah said to the man of God, but what shall we do about the hundred talents that I've given to the army of Israel? The man of God answered, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. Then Amaziah discharged the army that had come to him from Ephraim to go home again. And they became very angry with Judah and returned home in fierce anger. But Amaziah took courage and let out his people and went to the Valley of Salt and struck down 10,000 men of Seir. The men of Judah captured another 10,000 alive and took them to the top of a rock and threw them down from the top of the rock and they were all dashed to pieces. The men of the army whom Amaziah sent back, not letting them go with him to battle, raided the cities of Judah from Samaria to Beth Horon and struck down 3,000 people in them and took much spoil. After Amaziah came from striking down the Edomites, he brought the gods of the men of Seir and set them up as his gods and worshiped them making offerings to them. Therefore the Lord was angry with Amaziah and sent to him a prophet who said to him, Why have you sought the gods of a people who did not deliver their own people from your hand? But as he was speaking, the king said to him, Have we made you a royal counselor? Stop. Why should you be struck down? So the prophet stopped. But he said, I know that God is determined to destroy you because you've done this and have not listened to my counsel. Then Amaziah, king of Judah, took counsel and sent to Joash, the son of Jehoaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us look one another in the face. And Joash, the king of Israel, sent word to Amaziah, the king of Judah, a thistle on Lebanon, sent to a cedar on Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son for a wife. And a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trembled down the thistle. You say, See, I've struck down Edom, and your heart has lifted you up in boastfulness. But now stay at home. Why should you provoke trouble so that you fall, you and Judah with you? But Amaziah would not listen, for it was of God in order that he might give them into the hand of their enemies because they had sought the gods of Edom. So Joash, king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another in battle at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel. And every man fled to his home, and Joash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Joash, son of Ahaziah at Beth Shemesh, and brought him to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem for 400 cubits from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate. And he seized all the gold and the silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of God in the care of Obed-Edom. 
He seized also the treasures of the king's house, also hostages, and he returned to Samaria. Amaziah, the son, of Joash, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Joash, the son of Jehoaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the deeds of Amaziah, from first to last, are they not written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel? From the time when he turned away from the Lord, they made a conspiracy against him in Israel, and he fled to Lachish. But they sent after him to Lachish and put him to death there. And they brought him upon horses, and he was buried with his fathers in the city of David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow low in your presence to hear your word. Give us, Father, ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree in this account of Judah's kings. Joash, you may recall, though he seemed faithful as long as he remained under the good influence of the priest Jehoiada, proved faithless after Jehoiada died. And here Joash's son, Amaziah, also proves only half-heartedly faithful. Better than outright wicked kings, to be sure, yet not serving God, as verse 2 records, with a whole heart. He didn't serve God with a whole heart. Wilcock notes, sadly, that chapter 25 describes the outworking of the same sorts of patterns as was found in Amaziah's father, Joash, and indeed it does. Here, too, there is a period of obedience and blessing to start with, and afterwards one of disobedience and punishment. Many mistakenly think that all's well that begins well, but William Shakespeare had it right. All's well that ends well. One must continue in faithful service. And so we see here that this only happens by commitment, by sanctified effort that accompanies faith, all of which is of grace. It's all of grace. But we must persevere. And so we see here a striking picture in the life of Amaziah of the futility the utter futility of idolatry, which, two points, springs or stems from double-mindedness. Idolatry, which is futile, comes from double-mindedness and secondly, searches vainly for fulfillment. Idolatry seeks fulfillment, but never, never, never attains it. In any case, well, we begin then by saying this idolatry, which is futile, stems from double mindedness. That Amaziah was double minded, not firmly fixed on and committed to God and his word is evident 
as we saw from verse 2. It says there, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart. Well, let's focus on that, that first part that Amaziah did do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He, he wasn't simply unrelievedly wicked. And we see that what he did, for example, in verses 3 and 4, especially 3, may indicate perhaps some undue vengeance on his part. Verse 12 suggests that may be the case. But in the main, Amaziah's killing those involved with his father's death was within his legal rights. That wasn't unusual even in Israel. Some might say, well, it's a savvy part, uh, a savvy move on his part. He does clearly follow Moses' law here by sparing the children since each one shall die for his own sin. That's made clear in what's quoted here. The quote here is from Deuteronomy 24, 16, and we observe this in places like Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 18. God provides for justice, in other words, and in the lex talionis, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, in God's economy, that is justice. We want more than an eye or a tooth if someone injures us. But God never does that which is excessive or inequitable that would suggest spite or vengeance. Well, perhaps because of this obedience on his part, he did observe God's rule here and other obedience, other instances, as verse 2 says, of doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord, God granted initially Amaziah much victory. That's seen in the section verses 5 to 13. We see that. Amaziah did ultimately obey and act with just the 300,000 choice men of Judah and Benjamin, foregoing the alliance that he had made with Israel of the hundred thousand men and the hundred talents of silver foregoing that alliance at the word of the man of God because Israel, the Ephraimites, were systemic idolaters. It is interesting here that he was a little concerned about that, right? I can appreciate that as a, a Scotsman. Uh, some of you who are Dutchmen might can imagine his quandary here. He had hired these hundred thousand and had given a hundred talents of silver. And when the Lord says, let them go, he said, but what about the money? Let that go too. How much money is this? I, I did some figuring and it's really hard to figure from the times, but it would be hundreds of million, if not probably several billion dollars. It's a, a fair bit of money. And he was concerned, well, I paid this money. You know, I paid for this. We're going we're gonna to do it whether we like it or not. No, that's ungodly. If you're not to do it, you don't do it. I don't care what it costs you. He did so with the firm assurance of verse 9. The Lord is able to give you much more than this. What a wonderful statement. What a wonderful promise. The Lord is saying to him, let it go. Let it go. Yes, that you shouldn't have made this alliance. You shouldn't have given the hundred talents of silver, but you have. Let it go. The Lord is able to give you much more than this. Remember this, friends. Remember this. This is why you don't need to pursue anything outside of God's will. It wasn't God's will for Judah to take Israel along. You don't need money that's ill-gotten. 
You don't need a reputation propped up by lies. You don't need sexual relations outside of marriage. You don't need alcohol and illegal drugs to to escape the pain, to ease the pain, or endless Amazon purchases. Hitting a little closer to home, you can think of the respectable sins of which Jerry Bridges writes. Oh, a little bit of gossip. I mean, you know, we want to we have that a little. No, no. You need to know in all your life struggles in which you're tempted to turn to what you shouldn't for aid, to look to something other than God, even His good gifts, to look to them for comfort. You need to hear this word. The Lord is able to give you much more than this. You don't need this. You don't need anything outside His will. Oh, I know the devil and the flesh in the world tell you you need all sorts of things. You need what God says. That's what you need. That's what I need. And he's able to give you much more. Well, verse 2, Amaziah did all these right things, but not with a whole heart. 2 Kings 14.4, which is the parallel, you know the Kings and Chronicles parallel each other, says this explicitly about Amaziah's reign. But the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places, which is to say that the people worshipped other gods than Yahweh. They were idolaters. And James 1, 7 and 8 is obvious background. When you heard double-minded, and pastor has preached in recent times from James, I'm sure you were thinking James, and you should be thinking James, 1, 7 and 8 speaks of the double-minded man as one who is of two minds torn between God and the world and is unstable. That's the verdict for the double-minded man because it's like trying to have your foot in, in one place and another place, not being properly stable and standing in a right kind of way, but trying to serve God and mammon in some bizarre game of twister, which may be fun when you're a child, but it gets a little precarious when you get older. It's instability, instability. This is one, the unstable one is one who doubts God's goodness, who, as James 1.9 says, does not believe. Such a one, James says, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. In verse 14, back to our text in 2 Chronicles, makes clear what Amaziah did. He conquered the Edomites, but not their gods. Rather, he became captive to those gods and worshipped them. Selman says that Amaziah's achievement seen in the aftermath of his victory seems to bring out the worst in him. Let me just pause to say, isn't it often the case too that we're, we're the most tempted sometimes after the greatest victory? I remember one Puritan writing about how he was in a Sunday service and he said, I had never been so exalted in my affections and I left this service thinking, I am in the veriest heavens. And I think we can all relate to this. This was a road incident and he was driving his... his uh, uh, he had a kind of a, it's, it wasn't a carriage, maybe something more like a buckboard, but uh, at any rate, he's driving this wagon and someone comes in from a side road and more or less cuts him off, goes quickly. 
And all of a sudden, all of that that he had in church, all of that wonder and praise, he finds himself lashing the horses on after the fellow, whip in hand, ready to teach him a lesson. And then the Lord convicts him. Look, you thought you were so holy. Calvin says, at our holiest there remains much sin. And here, he's got these victories. And you think, well, he's sitting pretty. Sometimes when we're feeling the best and the best about ourselves is the most dangerous. Bunyan once said, yes, someone said to him after he came out of the pulpit, that was wonderful. He said, yes, going in, Satan told me how miserable I was and I could not say anything. And now that I've come out, he's telling me how wonderful I am. And so what we see after this victory, the worst seems to come out. Isaiah turns to idolatry, verses 14 and 15, to persecution, verse 16, to revenge, verse 17, to intransigence. He won't be moved back to righteousness, verses 16 and 20, to pride, verse 19, to apostasy, verse 27. But it all stems or springs from this double-mindedness, not serving God with a whole heart. Well, that's what we've been thinking about. That's our first point. And now to the second. We see clearly here in this double-mindedness we'll continue to think about, we see the futility of idolatry, particularly as it searches for and never and cannot find fulfillment. Idolatry can't find fulfillment. As Mick Jagger said, can't get no satisfaction. The world knows that. The world knows its idolatry doesn't fulfill it. This is why people keep, 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 they keep hoping that it will. They keep wanting it to, but it doesn't. I remember hearing an interview some years ago with someone who was a leading celebrity. And he was talking about how he grew up very poor and nothing and now he had risen to great heights in terms of fame and, and wealth. And he, they were interviewing him somewhere, Bel Air, somewhere like that. He had this grand house. There were pictures of it. And he said, so you've achieved everything. And he said, I suppose I have, but there's a hole in my soul. That was the, that was the word he used to the interviewer. There's a hole in my soul. And a lot of us, a lot of Christians do this. I've dealt with Christians who say, yeah, I know those celebrities say that, but I love the Lord. And if I had the money, Lord, sort of like, you know, you're like Tevia, would it hurt to make me, you know, rich? You know? Uh, if I had the money, I would be satisfied. You need to be satisfied with where you are. If you're serving God, if you're walking with God, Perhaps you're captive to idolatry today. Some are captive as those who have never come to Christ. Maybe there's no double-mindedness with you. If you've never come to Christ, you're just full-on committed to self, to whatever pleases your physical, sexual, emotional, and material appetites. There's no real care for God in others. You're given over to the seven deadlies, pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath and sloth, 
or idols like control, power, comfort, acceptance. Or you're on the other hand, as, as most here, believers, but perhaps you're struggling with idols. Calvin says our minds are idol factories, we know that. And John ends his first epistle. How does John end that great first epistle that is about really assurance? He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's the closing word. Keep yourselves from idols. All of us are double-minded, you see, if we're not properly dying to sin. If we're stalled in our sanctification. Maybe we've just gone away from the Word and prayer. We're not seeking Him. Maybe even we're here, but we're indifferently hearing and not really focusing and thus not really committed, not loving God or neighbor. Loving God or neighbor takes God's grace and it takes a proper sanctified effort on our part. If we just fall to our default, I mean, there are areas in which we really have to think about this. My wife knows this, and I probably shouldn't say it because it's something I still struggle with, but I grew up with a father who, when he got behind the wheel, was something. And that, has, that became sort of my default, my default behavior for being behind the wheel of the car. And so when I'm behind the wheel, if I just don't think about I need to love God and love my neighbor, it's, it's, it's not going to happen. I've got I've to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I've got to think about, you know, as, as my wife has encouraged me and assured me, that the other drivers can't hear what you're saying. It really doesn't do a great deal of good to be instructing them. Um, she's completely right. And all of us have our struggles in some ways or another. I'm not, uh, that, that's hardly my only. That's just one I can safely say something about here. This is true of all of us, the best of us, whoever that is, in the flesh. Dillard said about this passage, the author's call, the, the chronicler's call for exclusive loyalty to Yahweh and trust in God alone is prominent in the chapter. I think he's right. There's a call for exclusive loyalty to Yahweh and to trust in God alone. That's prominent in the chapter, he says, both in the condemnation of Amaziah's idolatry and in the rejection of dependence on mercenaries and warfare. Israel is to be exclusively loyal in its covenant with the Lord. But let's step back from this just a moment. Adam was not in the covenant of works. Adam did not maintain exclusive loyalty to God. When the word, when the temptation was given, he entertained it and threw in his lot with the devil. Israel in the Old Testament, in that time, even though there was a covenant of grace in that Old Testament dispensation, they typically and often disobeyed. Dillard said at another point, It's the office of the Old Testament to fail. How is that? Because it's pointing to the new. And we say thanks be to God that there's one who was exclusively and entirely covenantally faithful. Our Lord Jesus Christ 
An unbeliever and believer can come to God by him and him alone. There was not ever a hint of double-mindedness with Jesus. Not a hint. He served the Father for us, both in His living for us, His active obedience, and His dying for us, His passive obedience, with a whole and undivided heart. If you're sitting here this morning like I'm even standing here, I'm thinking, oh, that my heart were more whole, were less divided ever. And thanks be to God, there's one who was what we should be, what God made us to be, but what Adam since the fall and us in Adam have never been, were idolaters by nature in the flesh. But Christ is not. Let your heart be comforted. Though we have much shameful compromise with sin, every compromise with sin is shameful no matter how insignificant it is. And it just gets more shameful, the more significant. Let your heart be spurred on not only to trust Him more, but to serve more faithfully the one who was eaten up with the zeal of His Father's house. This is how committed He was. We sometimes, as believers, lack zeal. Think of what John said to the church in Ephesus, he speaks about uh, their first love. They've come away from that. Or to Laodicea. Laodicea is a church that thought it had it all, rich and increased with goods and having need of nothing. But the Lord says, you're not hot or cold, you're lukewarm. I'll spew you out of my mouth. This Lack of zeal is typical of double-mindedness. Or maybe we have zeal for other things. Maybe we have zeal for sports teams or political parties or you name it. That's not to say we can't be interested in these things, but we must chiefly have zeal for the Lord. Thanks be to God that Jesus Christ was fully devoted with a righteous record that's imputed to us if we trust Him alone. When we're double-minded in our divided loyalties, we're rendered fools, aren't we? Notice this from the words of the prophet in verse 15. Look at verse 15. Why have you sought the gods of a people who did not deliver their own people from your hand? Do you get what's being said? You've defeated Edom. And these gods didn't deliver Edom... Why do you now turn to them as if they could help you? This was, interestingly, not an uncommon phenomenon. Barber notes, it was a well-established practice in the ancient Near East that the conqueror took the idols of the subjected kingdom so as to leave the vanquished feeling helpless, for their gods were no longer among them. In addition, there's evidence that the kings of pagan lands did offer sacrifices to these foreign deities to honor them for having allowed the invading army to vanquish their people. And then there's the belief that if they suitably placated these deities, they would not turn on the conquerors. Well, whatever Amaziah's motivation was, 
he committed, verse 14, an act of blatant idolatry. He took the gods of the people that he had conquered. And this angered the Lord, and it determined Amaziah's capture and defeat. How senseless, how useless, how irrational and futile such idolatry is. We can see it in others. We can see it here. We're saying, man, that's crazy. I mean, do you do this when you read the Bible? Yeah, we we see things going on and we say, how could you think this? Are we examining our own lives and saying, how could you think this? How could you do this? How could you say this? We need to. Idolatry is futile because it yields none of the fulfillment it promises and only incurs God's wrath. You know, the sin always promises fulfillment but never delivers. Yes, it has pleasures for a season but leaves us worse than before. And this is always the case with addiction, which it kind of gives you a picture of the way sin works, some of its dynamic, right? If someone is addicted to drugs... You don't simply take it and get this high and say, oh, well, that was great. I never need to go higher than that. No, you always are seeking to outdo the previous. This is the nature of sin. It doesn't satisfy. So why do you serve the gods of this world to the degree that you do? Money, drink, sex, pleasure. These things don't deliver the world They're not fulfilling. The fellow says, I have a hole in my soul. If they don't serve the world, how are they going to deliver you? As Jeremiah says, idols are broken cisterns that can't hold water. Or as Dr. Phil would say, in regards to some futile course of action, how's that working for you? It doesn't even work. How's that sloth, how's that envy, how's that lust, that pride, that anger working for you? Amaziah met the fate of the double-minded even as his father, faithless Joash, had. Verse 16, he seeks to go after the messenger. And then verses 17 to 28, we're not going to look at these in any detail, I read them, but the long story short here is Israel defeats Amaziah. Amaziah defeated Edom and then let himself be defeated by idolatry. My dear congregation, idolatry is futile. It comes from being double-minded, from not serving the Lord with a whole heart. It searches vainly for fulfillment and ends in destruction instead. James 1 that talks about the double-minded man, gives us the cure. It gives us the cure. James 1 also says, if you lack wisdom, which double-mindedness and idolatry prove, double-mindedness and idolatry are clearly a lack of wisdom. What do you do if you lack wisdom? What does James say? Ask God for it. And God who gives generously to all will give you such wisdom as you need to be single-minded, to be wholehearted. But you have to be aware of this. You have to see it in your life. You have to be examining your heart and your life and seeing these things so that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. So that you might, as Owen said, be about the business of killing sin or it will kill you. Ask in faith, believing, not doubting, 
That's the mark of the double-minded. You're not asked to try. You say, well, that's hard to not doubt. Well, no, it isn't really in a, in a real sense because I'm not asking you to trust man or that which has never helped. I'm asking you to look to the living God. Look to the living God. I mean, for crying out loud, advertisers used to say, if you can't trust Prestone, who can you trust? God is who you can trust. Never mind some product. Never mind some person. Look to Him. Stop looking to idols. And look in faith to Jesus who has redeemed you from all such false gods.